1970, the U.S. Marshals set up a program so they could encourage more people to testify in criminal cases. They realized that many people were literally putting their lives on the line in order to come to court and serve as a witness. So to give those witnesses a sense of security, the U.S. Marshals set up this program to protect them. In exchange for your willingness to testify, they would give you a brand new identity. They'd move you to a new town with a, a new job and a new place to live. And they'd also give you all the paperwork you needed in order to make that change official. They'd give you a brand new driver's license, a brand new social security number, a brand new birth certificate. That way all the people who knew you before would have little chance of ever tracking you down. Now when they initiated this program, they referred to it as the Witness Security Program. And since 1970, our federal government has given this new life, this new start to more than 8,600 different people along with their families. But here's the catch, creating that new identity is not an easy thing. You see, in order for this program to work, the witnesses must abide by two rules. Number one, once you're in the program, you must never contact your old friends and colleagues. And number two, once you're in the program, you must not return to the town from where you came. Once you're in that program, you must leave that old life behind. Because if you fail to do that, if you fail to make that break, that decisive break, if you refuse to turn your back on what you had before and begin to move on, you put your new life in jeopardy. Well, I believe that's one of the lessons the Apostle Paul is trying to teach here in 1 Corinthians. He is writing this letter to a group of people who haven't been believers for very long and, and trying to embrace this new life that they have with Jesus has been a difficult transition for them. They're finding it hard to let go of the old habits, the old ways, the old patterns. And it's because of the kind of culture in which they live. They live in a city, in a community where most people could care less about God. Hey, who cares what God thinks about our lifestyle? And in that kind of environment, it's hard to let go of the old ways and embrace something new. And yet, if we want others to see the difference that Jesus can make for us, then one of the key pieces of evidence will be this. What are you willing to leave behind so that now you can follow Jesus? Let's put that in the context of the Bible. You remember John chapter 20, the first part of that chapter? Here we have Peter and John, and they just heard the good news that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. But they want to check this out for themselves. So early in that Sunday morning, they go running to the gravesite. And as they step into that empty tomb, what is the first thing they notice? The clothes. The old grave clothes, they notice what Jesus has left behind. And the Bible says when they saw that, they believed. Because of what Jesus had left behind, they now knew, they now knew it's true, it's real, it's actually happened. He has been raised from the dead. See, today we know a lot about those ancient burial rituals that Jewish people go through in that first century world, how when somebody died before they put the body in the tomb, they would first of all anoint the body with lots and lots of spices. In the case of Jesus, the Bible tells us they use more than 75 pounds. Think about this, more than 75 pounds of various fragrances that they put on them and put around them. And then they would wrap the body again and again and again with this expensive cloth or these expensive strips of linen. So think about this. If somebody was coming along and trying to steal the body, would they really take the time to uh, unwrap all those garments, knowing what they cost, knowing that the money that they could make off of it, would they really unwrap all that and just leave it behind? And it's not just the fact that this stuff was left behind. The Bible says everything that was left behind was neatly folded. If you're really in there to steal the body, would you really take the time to do something like that? That doesn't make any sense. 
the only plausible explanation for what was left behind and the way in which it was left behind is that a resurrection has occurred. The old is gone and something new has taken its place. Now you see the John, the apostle, doing this all the way through the Gospel of John. Consider another emphasizing this truth. The old's gone, something new's taken its place. Consider the story we have in John chapter 4. Here Jesus meets a woman at a well. She's come to the well in the middle of the day in order to draw some water. And it's just Jesus and this woman. And so they begin to talk. And after talking for several hours, the woman's life has changed. How do we know that? John chapter 4, verse 28. Look at what she leaves behind. Her water jar. I mean, at that point in time, that's what's most essential. I've got to have that water to drink, cook, clean, all kinds of ways. That water is absolutely essential to her. She comes to the well at the in the middle of the day in order to quench her physical thirst because at that moment in time, that is the top priority in her life. But after this encounter with Jesus, her priorities have changed. Now she goes running into town to share the good news. I have met the Messiah. And in her excitement to let everybody else know the good news, she's forgotten all about the water jar. Why? Because it doesn't matter anymore. It's no longer essential. Now what's important, I've met Jesus. You see, when she first came to the well that day, she came to the well to do what she wanted to do, to quench her physical thirst. But a couple hours later, she goes running away from the well because she is so eager to do what God wants her to do. There's been this dramatic change in her life. And what is the evidence of the change? Look at what she's left behind. So, what is it we as Christians are supposed to leave behind when we begin to follow Jesus? Well, I think this scripture we're going to look at today will answer some of those questions. Verses 16 through 20, the Apostle Paul talk about some of the activities that we need to set aside, the ways of living that should no longer be a part of our lifestyle if we're really serious about living for the Lord. But before he gets to those activities, first of all, in verses 12, 13, and 14, and those are the three verses I want us to focus upon today, first of all, he talks about the attitudes, the ways of thinking that have got to be set aside if you're really serious about following Jesus. For example, verses 12 and 13. The Apostle Paul is going to refer to a couple slogans that were popular in that day and time. Ideas that you would frequently hear as you're walking the streets or standing in the marketplace there in the city of Corinth. Here's one of those ideas. I have the right to do anything you say. You hear people saying this all the time in that, in that day, in that world. I have the right to do anything. Meaning what? Meaning I'm a free agent. I can do whatever I like. Rules for other people, not for me. See, we love to be independent. We resent it when anybody else tries to tell us what to do. This is my life, and I'll do what I please. And why? Why do we say it? What prompts us to say that? Freedom. We cherish this notion of freedom. Well, well the Bible says freedom's a good thing if you're clinging to the right kind of freedom. You need to understand not all freedom is the same. There's a freedom that can enhance your life, but there's also a freedom that can ruin your life. Freedom can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. And know this, both kinds of freedom, whether good or bad, they come with a set of uh, restrictions. You know, you put the fence around your property so you can keep the dog in the backyard. Now when you turn the dog loose, he's not free to roam anywhere he wants. Is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? I think it's a good thing. Now, because of that fence, you turn him loose and he's, he can play to his heart's content and you know he's not going to get himself into trouble. Now, because of that fence, he's not going to run out in the street and get hit by the car. Now, because of that fence, he's not going to run off with a pack of wild dogs and get loose. Now, because of that fence, he's not going to wander into some other neighborhood where he's going to be grabbed by a stranger who's not going to take care of him the way you do. 
Now, because of that fence, you keep him off the street. You keep him away from those strangers. Yes, you are restricting his freedom. But that restriction is a good thing. You're restraining him from a set of influences. You're restraining him from an environment that could be harmful for him. With that fence, you're putting a boundary in place that's going to keep him safe, that's going to give him the freedom to live in a good way, in a healthy way. You want to be free? The Bible says, yes, we understand that. But understand, not all freedom is beneficial. You have the right to do anything you want, but not everything you choose to do is necessarily going to be beneficial for you or beneficial for others. And then the Apostle Paul, because he wants to challenge this way of thinking, if you follow Jesus, you don't think this way. And there's many reasons why he's expressed one of them, but here's another reason. I have the right to do anything. Turn the coin over. I have the right to do anything, but you don't want to be mastered by anything. In other words, every choice you make comes with a consequence. Some of those consequences are not good. Are you free to smoke a cigarette? Yes, you are. But talk to the people who've indulged themselves in that freedom and look at what they've lost. Talk to that man or woman who's now suffering from lung cancer and ask them which kind of freedom would they prefer, the freedom to smoke or the freedom to breathe? Are you free to eat whatever you like? Yes, you are. But you talk to the people who indulge themselves in that freedom and you look at what they've lost, the, the freedom to sleep at night because they ate too much, the freedom to look nice because the good clothes don't fit anymore, the freedom to be able to work and play because now you're stuck in a hospital with those clogged arteries. Not all freedom is the same. Not all freedom is beneficial. And sometimes your freedom to, to choose something ends, ends up turning you into a slave. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. And it's the truth that will set you free. There's the kind of freedom that we want to cling to, the kind of freedom that has truth as its boundary, and not just any kind of truth, but the truth we receive from the Lord. Now, verse 13, here's another one of those slogans that Paul wants to challenge. If you follow Jesus, one of the changes that occurs in your life, you, you now have a different mindset. You look at life in a totally different way, which means there's certain kinds of thinking that you must reject. And here's another example of that. Verse 13, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Meaning what? Meaning we're made to eat. So when you get hungry, what do you do? You run to the refrigerator. It's a natural appetite, and it needs to be satisfied. It's what we were designed for. And we not only have an appetite for food, we have many other kind of physical appetites. So what's really behind this slogan is, hey, any kind of physical craving you have, it needs to be satisfied. So it's not just food for the body and the body for food. It could also be sex for the body and the body for sex. Whatever urge you have, it needs to be gratified. And hey, feel free to satisfy that urge in any way you want. Because after all, this body's only temporary. Here today, gone tomorrow. Not going to last. It's not that big of a deal. It's not all that important. You see, according to the Greeks, not the Bible, but according to the Greeks, remember, the city of Greece is in the southern part, uh, the city of Corinth is in the southern part of the land of Greece. Greeks like Plato and Aristotle and so many others, they taught this idea that when you leave this life, when you leave this world, you move on to the next life, you leave the body behind. The only part of you that goes on is the soul. Again, the Bible does not teach that. But the Greeks did, and they said, hey, since the body, you've only got it for a temporary period of time, do whatever you want. Doesn't matter. Feed your cravings any way you desire. Understand. God gave us our appetites, our physical appetites. But just as you don't just put anything in your mouth, because who knows about it, what might hurt your stomach, there's a healthy way to eat, and there's an unhealthy way to eat. So you don't want to just put any kind of food in your stomach. You want to put the right kind of food there. So it is with your sexual desires that God gave to you. There's a proper way to fulfill those desires, and there's a wrong way to do it. Not just any kind of sexual activity is legitimate in the eyes of God. 
And what Paul's trying to emphasize here is don't let your urges, don't let your cravings dictate your life. <laughs> I think back to those days when my children were first born. You know, all of a sudden we got this new baby in our house, and it's a moment of great joy. But it was also a life-changing experience because babies have this tendency to wake up in the middle of the night. And on those few occasions when I got up to check in the children, not once did I ever notice my son or my daughter laying there in the crib and thinking to themselves, you know, mom's had a hard day. After all, she just got out of the hospital and she really needs her rest. So even though I'm really hungry right now, I'm going to let her get her sleep. As a baby, I'm just going to lie here quietly and wait till she wakes up. No, baby acts that way. When they feel something, they let you know about it. Whether it's hunger, pain, or any kind of uh, discomfort, they're going to cry. They're too little to know any better. Babies have to act the way they feel. But here's my point. One of the signs that my children had grown up is they began to use their heads as well as their hearts. Over the years, they had learned that you can't always trust your feelings. It's not always wise to follow your heart that your feelings can lie to you, your feelings can deceive you and mislead you. So don't let your feelings dictate how you act. And that brings us back to verse 14. You see, there's something missing from this slogan, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. No, 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 no. The body is important to God, and the body should be important to us because this body has a purpose to it. Get this, the body, however, is not meant for. There's some things, the body has a design to it, and there's some things it's not meant for. And one of those things it's not meant for is sexual immorality. It's this Greek word, pornea. You heard Rob talk about this two weeks ago. We get our word pornography from this. And anytime the Bible uses this word pornea, it's talking about any kind of sexual activity that lies outside the boundaries of a proper marriage relationship. So the, Bible, the body is not just designed for anything. No, it has a purpose. What is the purpose? The body was not meant for sexual immorality. What the body was meant for is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And that purpose applies not just to this life, but to the life to come. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord Jesus. He raised him from the dead. In what way? He raised him physically. And what God did for Jesus, one day he's going to do for us, and he will raise us also. One of the exciting things about the new heavens and the new earth, and the Apostle Paul will go into a lot more detail about this when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but one of the exciting things about this new place, about going to heaven, it's a real place. It is an actual physical existence where you have an actual physical body. New, yes, made new in every way, but you will have an actual body and soul. So come back to this idea. There's a purpose for the body. Do you, remember, do you remember in school when you were studying biology and you heard about this thing called DNA? How there's this chemical substance in nearly every one of the cells in your body. It's a secret code that determines how those cells will develop, determines the, the color of your eyes, it determines whether or not your hair is going to be curly or straight. I mean, in many ways, that DNA determines your physical identity, how your body's going to function. Well, the Bible says there's more to it than that. There's something else that's true about every one, of us, every one of us and something else that ought to have a much bigger influence in determining who we are and how we live. The Bible says each one of us is made in the image of God. That's a big idea. It's a massive truth. And there's a lot involved in it. But a part of what it means to be made in the image of God is this. God gave us a physical body so that through this physical body he could reveal his glory so that through our physical bodies we could reflect his likeness, his character, his nature. 
Way back in 1990, Brett Butler was playing center field for the San Francisco Giants. He was one of the most popular players on the team. I mean, everybody in the city of San Francisco loved Brett Butler, just loved the way this guy played the game. But that year, 1990, Brett Butler was a free agent, which meant when the season was over, he's now free to sign with any team he wants. Well, Brett chose to sign with the Los Angeles Dodgers. The people in San Francisco couldn't believe it. Brett, 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 of all the teams you could sign for, why did you have to sign with them? See, if you're a baseball fan or you live in the state of California, you get this Dodgers, Giants, LA Dodgers, San Francisco Giants, they are bitter rivals. So that next year, the next baseball season, Brett comes back to the city of San Francisco. He's wearing a Dodger uniform. And the people in San Francisco are thinking, ah, do, do we cheer for the guy or do we boo? I mean, he's such a popular guy, but here he is playing for the enemy. So the first time up to the plate, there was a mixed reaction. Some of the people stood up and clapped and cheered and said, hey, we still appreciate you. Wish you were playing on our team, but hey, we still appreciate you. Other people stood up and boo, you're a traitor, you betrayed us. That first time up to the plate, Brett Butler got a hit, a double. He's on second base. Next batter up, he gets a hit, drives him in. He scores a run. Immediately after he crosses home plate, Brett Butler, instead of heading back to the dugout, he noticed Tommy Lasorda, the manager for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He was walking over there to talk to the third base coach. So Brett Butler went right over to him and gave Tommy Lasorda a great big hug. Well, hey, anybody who's loyal to the San Francisco Giants would never do something like that. So instantly, everybody in Old Candlestick Park, man, they stood up and began to yell. And it was a united chorus of boo! Well, right after the game, they interviewed Brett Butler, and they said, hey, did you do that on purpose? Did you hug Tommy Lasorda on purpose? I said, yes, I did. Because I wanted everybody in San Francisco to know I'm not a giant anymore. I play for the Dodgers. Hugging the manager was my public way of showing them there's been a change in my identity. That's the lesson the Bible's trying to teach you. God didn't just give you a soul. He also gave you a body. So that through this body, you could show the world around you, I belong to the Lord. You see, being a Christian is not just one part of your life, the religious part of your life. Yeah, here in the religious area of my life, I do my Jesus thing. But in all the other areas of my life, I kind of do my own thing. No. When you identify yourself with Jesus, that identity impacts everything about you. Whether you're reading the book of Genesis or singing How Great They Are, whether you're cooking supper or you're driving a car, whether you're playing shortstop or watching TV, whether you're eating a hamburger or shopping for a new pair of shoes, the Bible says whatever you do, you do it in the name of Jesus. Whether you eat or drink, you do it all for the glory of God. Now everything about your body is your public way of showing others, I play on His team. I belong to Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the freedom that you give to us in Jesus Christ. But God, teach us what that freedom means. Show us every day, God, what it is we're supposed to embrace and what it is we're supposed to let go of. God, we want our family, our friends, all the people who live around us, we want them to see Jesus. We want them to see how Jesus is changing our lives, how he changes the way we think, how he changes the way we feel, how he changes the way we act. God in everything, everything we say, everything we do, we want Jesus to be magnified. So God, to that end, would you teach us and lead us and bless us? And we pray for this in Jesus' name.
Amen. You know, if ever anybody had the right to say, I can do anything I want, it was Jesus. He didn't have to come to this world. He didn't have to go to the cross. But Jesus chose to use his freedom for our benefit. John chapter 10, Jesus said, I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. Nobody could. No, Jesus said, I lay down my life and I do it of my own accord. He went to the cross willingly. And he went to the cross to set us free. So this morning, as we observe the Lord's Supper, as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're celebrating this new life that we have because of Jesus, because of that sacrifice that he made on the cross. Now we have a new and a much better way to live. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for the life, the eternal, abundant life that he gives to us. And thank you, God, for the meaning, the purpose, the joy, the peace, the hope that he brings to that life. God, please use this moment, this time of communion. Use this moment to draw us near to you. Use this moment to draw near to us. And we ask you for that blessing. In Jesus' name.